Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome to season two of the Talking with Traders podcast series with me, Garth McKenzie. In this season, I'll be interviewing various successful traders and investors in my network and asking them pertinent questions about their career in the financial markets. I'll also be discussing how they've dealt with the recent surge in market volatility following the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic and how they are viewing the future as we all adjust to a new way of working. We'll also be talking about market themes that are likely to gain traction in a post-COVID-19 world. Over the last 10 weeks, I've been interviewing various traders and investors in my network. And I must say, I've really, really enjoyed this. It's been fascinating. And I consider it a real privilege to be able to get 40 minutes of concentrated time with each of these bright minds. I've learned a huge amount from these discussions, as I'm sure you have too. In this, the second season of uh, Talking with Traders, I've tried to bring in some thoughts around COVID-19 related opportunities and ask the guests what post-COVID themes are evident and where they're seeing investment opportunities looking out into the future. Now, this episode is the final. It's the 10th episode of season two of Talking with Traders. And this is where I pick out some of the nuggets, the best bits of the interviews that have really stuck with me out of the nine interviews that I've done over the last couple of weeks. So what I'll do here is look at three or four minutes as a summary from each of the interviews and the hottest bits that have come out of each of the interviews. Now, we began the series with a discussion with Fraser Perring of Viceroy Research. Very, very interesting character, quite a controversial character as well. He's a short seller. And this interview with Fraser Perring was particularly timeless as the wire card debacle had just broken and the company had filed for bankruptcy and its CEO had recently been arrested. So uh, Viceroy had been researching this company for some time, had been making it fairly public via Twitter and so on that they were doing a lot of digging around in Wirecard, calling it a fraud and basically looking for the share price of the company to go down, which it ultimately did do. We actually re-recorded this interview with Fraser Perring because I'd done it initially and then some big news broke around Wirecard, the arrest of the CEO and the company filing for bankruptcy. And we felt that it was worthwhile to then re-record the interview because the first interview that I'd done with Fraser Perring, uh, he was somewhat guarded. There was a lot of stuff that he was not able to say. So we decided to re-record it where he was able to be a lot more colorful with the interview that we did. Very interesting chap. He was famous in South Africa from uh, his time at, in, in, at the end of 2017 when Steinhoff collapsed. Um, at that stage, before, to, before Steinhoff, Viceroy Research and Fraser Perring was largely an unknown entity in South Africa. But they rose to prominence very quickly after Steinhoff because they had released a report around the time when Steinhoff collapsed and cited all the irregularities and uh, strange asset purchases and so on, and basically identified Steinhoff as a house of cards waiting to collapse. And that was really what led uh, Viceroy Research and Fraser Perring to rise to prominence in South Africa. And obviously, Viceroy was short of Steinhoff stock, and the company collapsed, and they made a lot of money out of being short on Steinhoff. But quickly, for those who may not be informed about this, what does it mean to short a stock? 
and why is what Fraser Pairing does so interesting and, and somewhat dangerous, actually? Shorting a stock really is what you do when you're looking for the price of a share to go lower. So ordinarily, one would look to buy a share and then see the share price rise and sell the shares at a higher price. Now, when you're short, you simply do everything in reverse. You look to sell the shares first and then buy them back later, hopefully at a lower price. And the difference is what you lock in as your profit. Now, of course, if you don't know this, you might now be asking yourself, how on earth can you sell something first if you don't own it to begin with? And that's where it gets a little bit more intricate. What you do is you borrow the shares. So typically, you've got long-term investors like pension funds or institutions that are long-term holders of a stock. And they will lend the shares out to short sellers, charge a small script lending fee for the privilege. What you as the short seller then do is you go and you actually sell those shares into the market. For that, you'll receive some cash as payment for the shares. And ultimately, at a later stage, the plan would then be to buy those shares back at a lower price. But when you buy them back, you're effectively going to pay less for them. So the difference between what you sold them for and what you buy them back at is your profit. And then, of course, once you've done that and the entire transaction is complete, you then give the shares back to the institution or the pension fund that you borrowed them from. So that, in a nutshell, is what it means to go short. It is kind of dangerous because you can see a share price rising. And, of course, you know the best that can happen on a, on a short sale is that the share price goes to zero. So you, the best you can hope for is to make 100% on your short sale. But if the price moves higher, there's an infinite amount as to how high a share price can rise. So there's a lot of risk when you are short of a stock. And you may have heard of the term a short squeeze. That's often what happens when a, a stock is heavily shorted and a number of those short sellers then are scrambling and falling over each other to actually buy back the stock in order to try and uh, contain their losses. Now, getting back to Fraser Pering and Viceroy Research, um, I mentioned that they became famous in South Africa around Steinhoff and the collapse. But very soon after that, they also published a report on Capitech in early 2018. And by that stage, the prominence of Viceroy had become quite significant. And the market paid a lot of attention to the report that they released on Capitech. So much so that the price of Capitec shares declined by 35% in early 2018. To date, none of those allegations that they leveled against Capitec have been proven true. But nonetheless, uh, Fraser and, and Viceroy Research still do maintain that Capitec is uh, not, a, not correctly accounting for their bad loans. And they believe that it's ultimately a house of cards waiting to collapse. Um, Time will tell, I guess, whether they are right or not in this respect, but they've certainly held their line as far as their view on Capitech is concerned. And in the interview, he made no bones about the fact that he still feels that um, Capitech is hiding something. So let's see. What he typically does is he looks for inconsistencies in companies versus their peers and sees that as a red flag. And then he goes digging around in the rubbish bins of, of uh, yeah, corporate speak and corp and, and, and numbers and financial statements and so on, looking to try and dig around and find the nuggets that ultimately could expose these companies to be frauds or overvalued. That's really the, the, the modus operandi that they follow at Viceroy Research when, when it comes to the short positions that they take on. And of course, this doesn't make them a lot of friends. Um, they've been accused of market manipulation in many cases. They've been taken on legally for such 
recently, he was uh, a, a market manipulation case against Fraser Pering was dismissed in Germany. But nonetheless, you know, this type of thing does obviously attract a lot of enemies when you're looking to try and identify things that are wrong with companies and you're looking to try and effectively take on these businesses in order to make the share prices of them fall. I asked all of the guests on the podcast about their approach to risk. And when I asked Fraser Pering, his answer simply was insanity. And yeah, they, he said they, they have risk controls, but the way he described it was rather vague. Um, they've worn some very big scars on some short positions that have gone against them in the past. And I must say, after the interview, I generally came away with the thinking that, you know, don't try this at home. A lot of the time with these interviews, I'll try and extract something useful for the listener, something that listeners can learn about the market, about trading. But I must say, in this case, I, I came away thinking that generally speaking, you just shouldn't try this at home. Yet what he does is very niche. Uh, and it's it's a very specialist skill, and it's not really something that the average person, I think, should be looking to try and emulate. So that was Fraser Pering. It was a very, very interesting interview, and it was certainly a great interview to kickstart season two of Talking With Traders. We then moved on to J.P. Foster, who now runs Protea Capital Management. He's a hedge fund manager there. He is well-known in the South African financial media. You would have seen him on a number of TV shows, Stockwatch on Business Day TV, he's often on the radio, etc. He's extremely eloquent in the way that he speaks. He's very, very well-informed and very well-read. He studied as a chartered accountant, uh, started his trading and investing career early on, um, and he also went to the School of Hard Knocks, as many of the interviewees on this podcast series did. He began with a CFD trading account when he was in his very early 20s, made a lot of money, tripled his money, in fact, and then proceeded to then lose it all. So I asked him about that and he said, well, you know, it, it came down to a combination of over leverage, overconfidence and not enough risk controls. Uh, he's subsequently obviously progressed. He's educated himself. He's now an extremely uh, good asset manager, and he's got a great deal of insight into the market. He follows what he refers to as a quantumental approach to the market. So that is, the, the word is made up of two words, effectively quantitative and fundamental. And that's the type of approach that he looks to follow when looking for stocks and opportunities to trade the market. Uh, JP Fister made himself quite well known in South Africa when they were short African bank. He was still at 361 asset managers at that point in time. And they were short of African bank. And JP Fister was the, the face of that trade, I guess. And that share price obviously collapsed to zero. And they were short of the stock and did very, very well. They've also been short, or JP Fister also has been short of Steinhoff over the years and Rebosis and uh, did very, very well out of those. But he did also make the point in the interview that you need to keep in mind when you're short, the best that you can hope for is that the share price goes to zero and, and that you make 100% on your money. And that's in an ungeared capacity. Now, <clears throat> uh, also one needs to keep in mind that such shorts are usually a small portion of a fund's assets. So overall, it, it looks good. If you can make 100% on a short sale, like in the case of African Bank and Steinhoff, but 
remember that these are also small positions in a portfolio. So the, the overall effect isn't great, but nevertheless, it, it helps to some extent. He makes the point that far more money can be made on the long side. And that's where stocks can go up hundreds of percent or even thousands of percent. And in that respect, he cited the example of Naspers. It's been the greatest stock performer on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange by country miles over the years. And, um, and they've been long of Naspers and done very, very well out of that. When I asked JP about their approach to risk, he said that, well, their funds do obviously have rules. Um, there are individual position sizes and diversification rules. And they also have long positions and, off, and offsetting short positions uh, to try and help mitigate the risk. They have a retail hedge fund, which has a maximum risk exposure of 200% of the fund's value. In other words, the total fund assets can never be leveraged by more than two times. And then they also have a qualified hedge fund where the maximum exposure there can be up to 400% of the fund's value. Uh, they also say that no individual position can make up more than 15% of the assets of a fund. He made the point that diversification is a very important risk measure. And they do also um, look to try and diversify as much as possible. Uh, he made the point that when it comes to their overseas positions on their funds, they can have up to 120 individual positions. And many of those, of course, are offsetting longs and shorts in a hedge fund. He said that they don't use stop losses in the funds, but they do use options to try and create protective strategies. That would be put options, etc. So quite complicated stuff. But Nevertheless, it does talk to the way that they approach risk and manage the risk in their funds. I asked a lot of the guests around COVID-19 and what it's meant for their processes and if they are seeing any new themes emerging looking ahead post-COVID-19. JP Fester talked about tech stocks. He said that many of these t trends were already in place uh, tech-related trends. These things were already there, but they've suddenly risen to greater prominence and their, their need, I guess, has accelerated following COVID-19. And when, when one thinks of that, I suppose one thinks of things like Zoom communications and Peloton and, um, and a number of other tech stocks that have suddenly found their relevance becoming a whole lot more in a post-COVID-19 world. JP did mention the shift away from old economy stocks where they are often short of old economy stocks. So things like you know, airlines and uh, cruise liners and lots of old, old economy type stocks. Uh, you're seeing a shift away from that type of thing into new economy stocks. And that was happening anyway, but it's that the whole trend has been very much accelerated uh, post COVID-19. What was a very interesting point that JP Fester mentioned was the, the, the fact that the market looks as if it's focusing on a rate of change of recovery relative to the actual absolute change uh, in, in terms of economics. And I thought this was a really good point and probably was the main nugget that I took away from his interview. You know, stock markets have staged an incredible V-shaped recovery following the crash that we saw in March of this year. And all of us, myself very much included, did not expect this. And you know, we thought that the market had crashed, it would bounce, but ultimately it would linger along at the lower levels. And, and from looking at the fundamentals of economics, one would think that that is indeed how it should be. And it's not the case in the markets, though. We've seen markets stage these huge V-shaped recoveries. And in the US, the markets have all gone on to make new highs. They've gone well beyond the February peak that they were at before COVID-19 even hit. And JP Fister made the point that 
what the market looks as if it's focusing on is the rate of change. And what that means is, let's take an example. If you go from 100 and you've, things fall by 50%, then you've fallen from 100 to 50. If you then go back up by 50%, you haven't gone back to 100. You've gone to 75. So net-net, you're still 25% down on where you were at the beginning. And from an economic perspective, that kind of looks as if, as if that is the way economies are likely to recover. Um, you might have seen lots written about the 90% economy. In other words, we see a recovery in economies following COVID-19, but it's a recovery to 90% of where we were pre-COVID-19. You're still 10% down, which is a substantial amount. And maybe markets still need to figure that out. Um, JP Fister felt that markets are pretty overvalued. And that was at the beginning of this podcast series when we did the interview about two months ago. And markets have subsequently run on even harder than that. And they certainly are looking very, very frothy at the moment. When it came to talking about youngsters and advice for youngsters, I ask all of the interviewees this question. And JP Fister said, just read and learn as much as you possibly can. And he also said that when you start out trading and you start out investing, Start small and also know that you probably will lose some money in the early years, but that is simply part of the learning process. And he did also make the point that when it came to his own learning, it's nice to be able to learn from other, other people's mistakes. But if you have to learn from your own mistakes, make sure that they don't cost you too much money. And then finally, I asked him about books to read. Uh, he said, the Berkshire Hathaway letter to shareholders is always fascinating. It's free and it's very, very insightful. And that is a great resource to get your hands on. My next interview was with Cy Jacobs. He's the founder of, or the co-founder of 361 Asset Management. It's a multi-billion rand hedge fund and unit trust fund manager in South Africa. I first met Cy in about 2006 when I was a broker at BOE Stockbrokers. And we used to broker some of Cy's deals back in the day. Um, he spoke to me about his early years in the market. He started with a bit of a baptism of fire, as many of the interviewees do, do or did in their careers. Uh, Cy borrowed money from a friend's dad and together him and his friend started investing in the market. And this was just ahead of the 1987 stock market crash. Um, obviously, that didn't go well, and they ended up owing quite a lot of money back to their friend's dad and had to enter into a repayment agreement with interest and ultimately pay, the back, pay back the money over time. Um, Sai admits he's not a great trader. He said, you know, unless there's a really glaring opportunity in the market, he's not a great trader and not great at timing the market, but he is an investor and a very good investor at that. And the performance of 361's funds over the years has proven that case without a shadow of a doubt. Sai likes to focus on businesses that are innovative. They have a very wide moat and a technology focus. And he did mention that, sadly, there are not many of those types of opportunities in South Africa. Far more of them are actually overseas. Um, and he likes to find businesses where the management team is aligned with shareholders' interests. Uh, 361 Asset Management did well in shorts in African Bank and Steinhoff, as I mentioned in the previous interview with uh, JP Fister. But he also made the point that these were very small positions in the portfolios. And when it comes to really big outsized winners for 361, the biggest winner that they've had over the years has been in NASPIS. That's been an absolute outsized winner. It's been phenomenal in the amount of performance that it's generated for their funds over the years. 
But he also made the point that unfortunately position sizing rules have meant that they'd had to scale back that position as it's become bigger and bigger. And that has been rather disadvantageous. Um, when, a sh when one particular stock grows so much that it becomes a disproportionately large part of a portfolio, naturally that, port that position needs to be trimmed back. And in the case of Nuspus, that has been disadvantageous. Um, this is a stock that they've liked since it was 60 Rand. And if you look at it over the years and you add in all the things that have been spun out, take Nuspus in its current form, process, multi-choice, Novus, and a variety of other businesses that have been spun out of Nuspus over the years, you're talking about a collective valuation of about 5,000 Rand per share. So from 60 Rand to 5,000 Rand a share is immense, immense growth. And we're talking about thousands and thousands of percent of growth there. And just to get back to the point about long positions versus short positions, this is what we were exactly referring to. Notice how well you can do out of a stock that goes up multiple times versus a short where the best you can do is the share price goes to zero and you make 100% on your money. When you're long, you stand the potential to make so much more out of a long position than what you can do out of a short and you also don't really take on the same level of risk either when you're taking on a long position as what you do when you're taking on a short position. When I asked Sai Jacobs about their approach to risk, he said obviously their hedge funds have long positions and short positions, so they are offset to some extent there. Um, their benchmark is to be cash and ultimately to neutralize market risk. So they've done that very, very successfully over many years. And that little bit of extra outperformance year, year after year after year ultimately adds up to a lot of our performance over many years. So I did also make the point that they use put options to try and create some protection on the downside when it comes to their long positions. In terms of COVID-19 and the future looking beyond COVID-19, uh, Sai said that he sees an acceleration of trends that were already there. So much like in the previous interview, technology focus Stocks and companies that were already doing clever things, innovative things pre-COVID-19, you've simply seen an acceleration of those types of trends. Um, most of these opportunities are overseas, and unfortunately, he did make the point that South Africa is somewhat devoid of these innovative types of opportunities. When it comes to advice for youngsters, Size said that the game is no doubt changing. Um, it's you know, the old style and the old techniques of analyzing companies and playing the market are, are somewhat outdated. Not that they're ir irrelevant, but things have changed. And he said that nowadays data science and artificial intelligence is massive. And that's probably where a youngster would need to be looking for a future in the markets. He suggests studying applied mathematics and data science. And then when I asked Cy Jacobs about what books to read, he gave a really interesting recommendation, which was kind of outside the norm of what we had received from a lot of other guests. He recommended a book called Red Notice by Bill Browder. And it's a book about a Russian hedge fund manager who did very, very well, but also had to see the ugly side of Russia. And I followed Sai's advice, and I've actually been listening to the audio book of Red Notice myself. I'm probably about three quarters of the way through it now. And it's an absolutely fascinating gripping read. So if you haven't read it already, I can also recommend that you get your hands on Red Notice. It's really a very, very in interesting and, and gripping book to read. 
The fourth interview in season two of Talking with Traders was with Siam Kidd. Now, he's located here in the UK, uh, like I am. He runs a, a website called therealistictrader.com. Now, I first encountered Siam in South Africa when we were both speakers at an IG Markets event, uh, a trader symposium event, and we both had the stage. And I met him then and found him to be a very interesting, fascinating guy in the way that he views the market. He was actually a former Air Force pilot, believe it or not, um, and began trading while he was still an Air Force pilot. He similarly had a baptism by fire. He made huge amounts of money uh, relative to what he was earning at the time and then ultimately lost it all. He, he, he took an account from about 10,000 pounds up to 100,000 pounds and then basically lost the whole lot very, very quickly. And he wrote a book called The 15,000 Pound Pop Tart or The 15 Grand Pop Tart as he refers to it. And it's all a story about um, you know, how, he, how he made all this money and then lost it. It's a very short book. You could read it over a day probably, but it's quite interesting. I've read it and uh, it, it got some good basic market principles and some of the lessons that Siam learned from his time in the market. He's a trend trader. He mainly focuses on trading Forex, actually. Uh, he makes the point that markets typically trend from between 15 and 30% of the time, and the rest of the time, the markets are quite choppy. He looks for trending opportunities with low risk but high reward potential opportunities, and he tries to capture a good R multiple. So what is an R multiple? Um, the R multiple comes from a, a book written by Van Tharp, which in fact is one of the books that Siam Kid recommends to read. And simply what it is, is it's how much risk are you willing to assume on a trade? Now, typically, the rule is no more than 2% of your capital should ever be risked on an individual trade. Now, Siam is far more conservative than that. He risks 0.25% of his capital on an individual trade. And then he adds to the winners and cuts losers very, very quickly. The idea being that with the R multiple, and in this case, his R multiple is 0.25% of capital, you don't want to lose more than that on a single trade. And you want to try and make multiple times your R multiple. And in the case of Siam, he's said that in, in many instances, he's managed to capture trades where he can make 10, 15, or even 20 times the R multiple that he assumes on his trades. So that really is the key to successful trading. Maximize your winners, run your winners as much as you possibly can, add to your winners. But when you're in a losing situation, cut your losers very, very quickly. Uh, Siam mentioned that his hit rate is only between 35 and 40%. So in other words, 35 or 40% of his trades are actually winners, meaning therefore that 60 or 65% of his traders are actually losers. But because he can make so much more on his winners than what he loses on his losers, he ultimately comes out as a very, very profitable trader over time. He doesn't try to pick tops or bottoms. He, he really is only interested in trying to capture the rump of the trend in the middle of the, of, of the trend. So he knows that he's not going to catch the bottom. He also knows that up at the end, when, when the trend bends, you know, the trend is your friend, tell the bend at the end. That part at the end where, where the trend then turns downwards, uh, you can then start to give back a large chunk of your profits. So he wants to try and capture the, the meat in the middle of a trend, as it were. From a technical analysis perspective, he uses an eight 
exponential moving average and a 21 exponential moving average. And he looks at four hour charts and daily charts when it comes to Forex. And he uses those moving averages as a method to try and keep him in trades and ride the winners as long as he's on the right side of those moving averages. He says that in a good trend, typically the price will stay on the right side of the eight EMA and, and in a very good trend also the eight EMA will be in a, in the case of a rising trend, the eight EMA will stay above the 21 EMA whilst that trend is rising. And using that methodology has helped him to, to ride some very, very big trends where he's made several thousand pips on some Forex trades. Uh, he looks at his own capital from the perspective that he, he splits it into two. He's got what he calls a DIY pension, and then he has a gambling account. Now, obviously, the DIY pension is, is the bigger chunk of it. And he, what, in his own words, no silliness happens in that account. That's where he has ultimate discipline. And he follows his rules, keeps losses small, tries to maximize winners. And ultimately, that is a, a very, very disciplined account. He does admit, though, that he has a, an addictive gambling type personality. And for that reason, he's given him an, himself an account where he can actually go wild and do what he likes from a gambling perspective. And he refers to it as his gambling account. And that's where he takes big risks, sometimes risking 10 or 20% of the account. He knows at times that he might blow out that account, but he also knows that certain times he might make 10 or 20 times his money on that account. And then ultimately, he sweeps that and cleans it out and pushes profits across to his bigger account, which is the DIY pension account. So quite an interesting asset allocation there. When it came to talking about his views on the future, Siam had some very interesting things to say. Um, he's quite bearish in general in terms of economies and stock markets. He, he thinks that we're likely to see another 1929-style depression, um, which is interesting. He also sees big inflation coming down the line as a result of the mass of money printing that we're seeing by central banks at the moment. Uh, so for that reason, he says that you need to be owning assets that are non-inflationary in their supply, as those assets are likely to rise in price in a monetary supply world. So when you've got fiat money expanding, money supply is expanding much like it is at the moment uh, with the Fed and other central banks applying so much stimulus to, to markets and to economies, you want to be looking for assets that are somewhat finite and are not inflationary in their supply. And to that extent, he loves bullion, uh, obviously gold, and he also particularly likes silver, which has recently broken out, made a very bullish technical break. And then he also likes cryptocurrencies, and he talked about Bitcoin and Ethereum. I must say, I'd always been a little bit of a skeptic when it came to cryptocurrencies, but listening to Siam Kid talk about them really got me thinking and, and, and has actually changed my outlook to a large extent on, on the cryptocurrencies. And actually Bitcoin in the time that we've done this series two uh, of talking with traders, Bitcoin's broken out, made a very bullish technical break above $10,000 per coin. And from a longer term perspective, that technical break actually is looking very, very good. So certainly it got my attention looking at the technicals and then also listening to what Siam had to say and his outlook and his view for cryptocurrencies. In terms of advice for youngsters, uh, Siam Kid reckons you need to be absolutely certain that you are financially stable before you set out and try to trade the market. He's seen far too many stories of people who are not financially stable 
and ultimately that you're just not set up to be successful as a trader in that case. And when it came to books, he mentioned Van Tharp's book, Trade Your Way to Financial Freedom, that I referenced a little bit earlier on. You're listening to Talking with Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world-leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. In the middle of the series, we then uh, took a little bit of a pivot away from talking to specific traders or investors. And we spoke to two uh, leaders of trading providers in South Africa. We spoke to Charles Savage, who's the head of Easy Equities, and we spoke to Travis Robson, who's the head of IG Markets in South Africa. And it was a particularly timeless interview because we've seen a huge pickup in retail trading activity worldwide uh, following COVID-19. During the lockdown, a lot of people opened trading accounts with Robin Hood in the USA, and that is effectively a trading app. It's almost like a, like a PC or, a, or a phone game, a lot of gamification in the platform. But essentially, it's an app that allows retail traders to trade the stock market. It's very easy. It's, you know, the barriers to entry continue to come down, but this is the ultimate low barrier to entry. It's really very, very simple to open a trading account on Robinhood and start trading equities. And we've seen a huge number of retail clients starting to trade the stock market through apps like Robinhood. Um, that in itself maybe is a little bit of a warning in terms of where we are in the overall market cycle, because from a longer term perspective, one typically does see that retail trading activity peaks at around about the times when, when stock markets peak. So that is just an interesting observation as an aside anyway. Um, but when it came to talking about easy equities and IG markets, both firms have seen quite big pickups in accounts as well. IG mentioned uh, that they've seen a 34% year-on-year increase in account openings across the group. And easy equities, which is in South Africa, and it's obviously far uh, less uh, less saturated or less less mature, let's talk, let's say, than what IG is. Easy Equities saw 100% year-on-year growth in their client base uh, to February 2020. But during the months of COVID, they saw a 500% increase in account openings. So they had typically been opening about 10,000 accounts per month. And during COVID and during the lockdown, that number went up to 50,000 account openings per month for Easy Equities. And Easy Equities has recently partnered with Capitec to get even greater distribution reach. So very interesting to see the growth that they're seeing in uh, account openings and also to see that it is, is somewhat reminiscent of what we're seeing around the rest of the world as well. Both firms are very innovative. So I asked either of the, the guests, both of the guests, about the innovation that their firms are looking at. Travis Robson from IG spoke about the trader analytics tool um, it's a very useful tool. I've used it myself and it's very useful to monitor your trading habits and look at your consistency, what your best markets are, etc. Um, it really is a helpful tool. So if you are an IG client, have a look at that trader analytics tool. It really is very, very helpful with the amount of innovation, uh, information that it shares with you as a trader and really will help you to try and focus on your strengths, but also to try and weed out your weaknesses as a, as a trader as well. 
Um, Travis also spoke about the IG Trader Academy webinars, seminars, etc., and all the various different things that they're doing to try and allow the clients to interact with the broker. Easy Equities and the Purple Capital Group have always punched above their weight in terms of innovation. Um, I go back, you know, to my early years in the market. Uh, I've had an account with GT two four seven since I was in my early twenties, and even at that stage, Purple Capital Group was very innovative with the products they were bringing to market at that stage. And and the Easy Equities product is just another example of the innovation that you that we've typically come to expect from Purple Capital. And I found it really interesting talking to Charles Savage about some of the innovations that they're doing with Easy Equities and the growth that they see for that business in the years ahead. One of the things that he spoke about was the loyalty program that Easy Equities offers to their clients in order to help them get to a point of zero brokerage. Now, I spoke about Robinhood, the app in the USA, that allows clients to trade with zero brokerage. And you can get that zero brokerage from the start as a Robinhood account. Easy equities don't offer zero brokerage from the start, but they do offer it to you if your behavior is good. And the way he explained the loyalty program is as follows. It's effectively split up into four parts. So the first part is diversification. If your portfolio is well diversified, then that counts towards 25% towards zero brokerage. Then they look at your inflows and outflows into your, and out of your account. If you're seeing net inflows into your account, in other words, you're saving consistently and adding money to your Easy Equities account, then you get another 25% allocation towards zero brokerage. Then they offer a bunch of courses that are online courses to try and help educate their clients and ultimately make them better investors. And if you complete certain number of courses, then you get another 25% towards your zero brokerage. And then finally, they refer to community, which is giving to charities. And if you've given some of your money or given a little bit of an allocation to charities that are supported by Easy Equities, then you get the final quarter. And if you get all four of those things right, ultimately, you can actually achieve zero brokerage trading with Easy Equities. And ultimately, I think that's a good thing. It's, it, it's encouraging clients to use good habits. It instills good habits. Uh, and it's a really phenomenal behavioral incentive. So once again, really interesting to see the innovation that Easy Equities is bringing to market in that respect. Uh, Charles also mentioned that the longer term growth for Easy Equities needs to be in the global markets. South Africa has been a really good incubation uh, place for the company to grow. They've got established business in South Africa. They're also now in um, on Australia in a small way and looking to the US as well. But ultimately, they look for easy equities to become a global business and to start to, I suppose, rival the likes of Robin Hood ultimately. So both those firms, both IG Markets and Easy Equities have done a great deal to try and lower the barriers to entry so that the public in South Africa can have access to the market. Both firms continue to do great things in the respective areas that they operate in. And kudos to all of them, to both Charles Savage and to Travis Robson for the hard work that they are doing to bring the stock market and bring investing closer to the retail public. Our sixth interview in the Talking With Traders Season 2 podcast series was with Bruce Main from Ivy Asset Management. This was a really interesting discussion. Bruce is a very big future thinker. Uh, he's got his eyes on innovative businesses, looking at future themes, future trends, 
And I felt that this was really one of the most fascinating discussions that we had in the series. And I came away from the interview with some really, really great insights. And uh, he also gave us a couple of shares to think about in terms of future investment themes that one could look at offshore. Bruce started his uh, investing career early on. For his 11th birthday, he asked for shares for, for, for his birthday. And his father bought him some shares for his for his 11th birthday. So it just shows the passion for the market that Bruce has. Um, those who follow Warren Buffett will know that I think he also started around 10 or 11 years old. And Buffett is always famous for saying that his only regret in life is that he didn't start when he was younger. So Bruce Mayne follows in, in that kind of footsteps, um, having started very, very young and spawned a passion for the markets from a very early age. Bruce mentioned that, unfortunately, South Africa is largely lacking in terms of innovative investment opportunities. So he does look offshore for a lot of his clients' investment opportunities. Having said that, though, there are a couple of interesting opportunities in South Africa. Um, Signia is one of the businesses that he cited as being very interesting. And um, RV Asset Management are the single largest uh, minority shareholder in Signia. And he likes the innovative things that Signia is doing in terms of uh, their fourth industrial revolution ETF. They're also invested in Oxford Sciences, looking at COVID-19 vaccines and that kind of thing. So certainly some interesting innovation within the Signia group. And then he also referenced African Rainbow Capital, which uh, owns Time Bank and seems to be trying to head in the direction of a more innovative approach to banking, which is very, very big overseas, but not nearly as big in South Africa. Bruce set up RV Asset Management with a focus on information. Um, he loves technology. He loves looking for innovative investment ideas. He studied information systems, and he attended a number of fintech courses at Oxford. Uh, he likes to look for high revenue businesses with high price to earnings ratio that ultimately have the potential to grow into their PE multiples. So Apple is a good example of a company like that. He said, you know, it's always been expensive. It's always had a very high multiple. But ultimately, the growth in that business has seen uh, the, 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 the earnings grow into the share price. And if you'd been an early investor in Apple, you've done phenomenally well. Um, Bruce also loves Tesla. Now, if you're looking for a company that has got a high PE multiple, you're not going to have to, you know, you'll, you'll struggle to find something that has a higher multiple than Tesla. Um, in the weeks since we've recorded the interview, Tesla's share price has gone absolutely ballistic. I mean, at the time that we, we interviewed Bruce Main, share price of Tesla was heading towards $1,000. It has since, the share price has since split. But if one were to uh, adjust for the split, then the share price right now is trading at around about $2,500 per share. So it's been massive, massive growth. And it's trading on a price to earnings multiple of well over 1,000 times now. So you're essentially paying over 1,000 years worth of earnings for Tesla. But of course, that assumes there's going to be no growth in earnings if you just take that multiple. Of course, there will be growth in earnings. And that's exactly what Bruce Main looks for. He looks for companies like that, like Tesla, that have got a huge innovative future ahead of them. Yes, they might be expensive now, but ultimately he believes that the earnings will grow into that valuation. So they're a big holder of Tesla. And obviously with the share price doing what it's done recently, 
they will have done exceptionally well out of that investment over the last couple of weeks. And they were doing well out of it already before that as well. Um, he, he cites how old economy stocks are in large long-term downward trends. And we spoke specifically about some of the big old antiquated banking stocks, the likes of HSBC and Barclays and Lloyd's and Deutsche Bank and the like. These are old economy stocks. They've got legacy systems, very, very outdated in terms of the way they're doing things. Bruce is far more interested in the modern banking arena, um, new, new age payment gateways, and he cited a couple of shares like Square Incorporated, for example, that is doing really interesting things in the payments space. And if you look at those types of companies, then they've got share prices that are in nice, strong rising trends, as opposed to those uh, antiquated dinosaur banks that are in long-term downward trends. Um, other companies that he liked, well, he likes Facebook. They do they they they, they uh, own shares in Facebook, but he does worry a little bit about the current business model. But what Bruce really does see as a potential value unlock down the way is if Facebook were to in, to uh, come up with some sort of a banking or payment interface in order to go with their huge network of clients. Um, that could really be a very, very powerful combination. He likes a company called CRISPR. It's a genome sciences business. So they're involved with genetic editing. Um, and then 2U Incorporated, which is an education provider, particularly an online education provider. And I've had a look at the share prices of all of these stocks since we spoke. And uh, there's really some interesting technical things happening on these share prices. In addition to the very favorable fundamental and, and um, tremendous growth outlooks that Bruce cited in the interview. When it came to advice for youngsters, he said, look, you need to decide whether your focus is on the short term or the long term. Are you a trader or are you an investor? He is very much a long-term investor and he only trades the market from a long perspective. So not only long term, but long only. In other words, he doesn't go short um, and he, he's looking to buy companies that have got long runway and a lot of future potential for success. When it came to books, Bruce said rather than books, he's more into looking at courses and YouTube videos. As I mentioned, he's done some fintech courses at Oxford. There are a lot of very interesting fintech type of courses available online. And also he cited YouTube videos. He said, you know, if you just scout around on YouTube and do a bit of digging, you will find some absolutely tremendous YouTube videos that will give you a lot of insight into future investment themes. So it was a really interesting interview with Bruce Main. And um, as I say, I came away quite excited about some of the companies that he had mentioned in that interview and the future prospects for those businesses. Dr. Adrian Saville was up next. He heads up Canon Asset Managers, also a pretty well-known figure in the South African financial media. Adrian has a PhD in economics, uh, but he mentioned that partway through his studies, he actually pivoted to an arts and psychology degree, much to his father's dismay. But Adrian still believes to this day that that was one of the best pivots he's ever made in his career. And he, he, he's had a great quote. He said, you know, anyone can do the numbers or can, you, you can do the numbers, but can you do the psychology? And that's such a, a good quote. It's such a, a relevant point that he made. Financial markets, trading, investing, it's all very well to do the numbers, but it psychologically can be very, very taxing at times, particularly when markets start to go hay haywire. So the question is well asked, can you do the psychology? 
And Adrian believes that his pivot to psychology during his studies actually was to his significant benefit ultimately, and it served him very well throughout his career since then. Uh, in 1994, Adrian started an investment club amongst 12 friends, and that ultimately was the beginning of Canon Asset Managers. So he's never actually had a formal job in, in the corporate world or with an asset manager at all. He's been a self-starter right from the beginning, from when he did his academic studies. He's since been you know, self-employed. And ultimately, that investment club that started amongst 12 friends has gone on to become a multi-billion rand asset manager in the form of Canon Asset Managers. Interestingly, all 12 investors are still involved in the firm to this day. And Adrian made the point that a lot of those investors who started in the early years have turned what is relatively small monthly contributions into substantial capital gains over the years. And he referenced the point of time in the market. And to that extent, we spoke about time in the market and just how you can utilize time to your benefit. If you're a youngster, know that time is your greatest asset in terms of investing. Utilize your time wisely. And that's exactly what Adrian focuses on doing with his clients' funds in, in the funds that they run. He mentioned that asset allocation is key and obviously equities being the number one asset class where you look to try and achieve the greatest amount of growth. Uh, Adrian has become quite well known over the years for looking for unloved, overlooked and under-researched companies to try and unlock value. Um, Super Dogs is one of the portfolios that they run at Canon Asset Managers and that's exactly what they do where they basically go looking for companies that are unloved, overlooked, under-researched but have a huge amount of potential for upside. And to that extent, they've really done very, very well out of a couple of their investments. Um, Adrian referenced OneLogix, which is one of the best best performing investors that they've ever been involved in, where the, that company has risen by 35 times in value. And they unlocked, uh, they identified that when it was still um, you know, small, unloved, under-researched, et cetera, as I mentioned. Adrian also mentioned that portfolio diversification is very key. Um, so he talks about, you know, in a, in a 30 stock portfolio, if you were to lose your entire capital in one stock, well, then that's a 3% weighting. You can recover from that. The problem comes when you bet the farm and it goes wrong. So diversification really is key. And he referenced Group 5 as a recent example where they've, they, unfortunately, is one of the stocks that blew up in their hands where it's basically gone to zero. But if you've got the correct amount of diversification in your portfolios, then that one stock going to zero, ultimately, you can recover from that quite nicely. Adrian also mentioned that, this, that scars are helpful and you simply won't get those scars out of a textbook. And I can certainly attest to that. And at the end of the day, I guess you want an asset manager who actually wears some scars, who's learned the hard way, because ultimately you learn those lessons very valuably if you've actually got the scars to show. When it came to COVID-19 and how they're investing in a post-COVID-19 world, um, Adrian said that you know ultimately your asset allocation needs to be such that COVID-19 shouldn't have really been a major problem for you anyway as an asset manager. Their portfolios are well protected and are well diversified. So to that extent, they haven't really done anything differently in a post-COVID-19 world. Um, he likes gold. He says that their funds have a 5% weighting to physical gold. And also they have 
an allocation to gold shares, the most prominent of which is, Af- is uh, Pan-African Resources. And then when it came to advice for youngsters, Adrian Saville said, read lots, read history. And he referenced Charlie Munger. He said, you know, the best lessons are found in a $10 history book. It's one of Charlie Munger's quotes. And Adrian really agrees with that. He said to use your time wisely and ultimately appreciate the power of time in your life and the power of time in investing. And also know that when it comes to compounding your returns, time is the greatest asset that you can possibly have on your side. I then interviewed James Gubb and James is a very interesting character. He was a client of mine when I was a broker at BOE and uh, we did some uh, single stock futures trades for him back between about 2005 and 2009. Um, He's famous for doing the middle finger stock market art. Uh, This was something that happened in 2017. You may have recalled it. What James did was he took the uh, share price, the illiquid shares of Oak Bay Resources, which is a Gupta-owned company. And because the stock was illiquid, he was able to buy and sell against himself in order to create a chart that ultimately looked like a big middle finger. And ultimately, that, of course, made a very big statement, a statement which was you know, hilarious and widely supported by the vast number of South Africans following, obviously, the state capture and what the Guptas had done to the country. It was very funny, but unfortunately, the JSC and the Financial Services Board didn't see the funny side of it. And James was fined 100,000 rand for his efforts. Um, he was also worried that, his, that the CFA Institute might go after him because he is a, is a qualified CFA, Chartered Financial Analyst. And um, he actually took it upon himself to report himself to the CFA Institute. And ultimately, they saw what he did. They realized that it was not for profit. He was just making a statement and kind of gave him a slap on the wrist and said, look, just don't do that kind of thing anymore. And, and they took a very responsible and mature approach to it which unfortunately the, the, the JSE or the, the Financial Services Board didn't, and, and it ultimately cost James Gubb 100,000 rand in the form of a fine. But he certainly got great mileage out of it. More marketing and more exposure than 100,000 rand's worth of advertising could have ever bought him. It's a very interesting story, and that's what James is well known for in South Africa. But before that, he was actually a fund manager at Alan Gray, um, amongst many other places throughout his career. He's had a very successful career as an investor over the years. But nowadays, he, he takes it easy. He surfs. He lives down in Plettenberg Bay. He is an artist. And ultimately, he's, he, he's enjoying the fruits of his labor. Um, he got very, very sick with cancer in 2008. And I suppose, as often happens to people, you go through something like that. It does begin to make you reflect on your life and reassess what's important in your life. So now James takes it easy, surfs, does art, and still trades his own capital on the side, but no longer has any um, has any clients. I knew it was going to be a very interesting uh, interview talking to James. Obviously, as I said, he was a client of mine back in the in, in 2005 to 2009, um, and it's a somewhat eccentric fellow. So it was really interesting to talk to him. When I spoke about his early years, he, he mentioned that both his mom and dad were investors, and his mom, in fact, had a very, very interesting trading strategy, which was so simplistic, but yet it really worked. And it's simple as this. He said, what she used to do is she would plot the share price of a, of a stock on a piece of paper. And if the share price chart got to the top of the page, 
she would sell the shares. And if it got to either the right side or the bottom, she would also sell. And I suppose what it talks to is ultimately, you, you know, you cut the losers when they're not working. But also if a share price gets a little bit too hot and it rises too quickly, you sell it. So simple, but yet so effective. And it, he said it worked remarkably well um, for his mom. And quite, a, quite an interesting perspective to, to think about really. And it's a reminder that often the simplest things actually do work the best. James made the point that holding good shares and particularly adding to good shares is really the key to success in investing and, and long-term success. He argued that the fund management rules are actually prohibitive in that regard. Regulation 28, et cetera. They prohibit you from having a, a position that gets too big. If a, if a position becomes too big in a portfolio, you're actually forced to cut it back. And we referenced that in earlier interviews with, with Cy Jacobs where They've had been forced because of the rules to scale back their size in NASPAS because it simply became an outsized position in a, in a portfolio. And James Gubb said that if, you've, if you're ultimately managing your own money, you effectively get to bypass all of those rules. And you can, in fact, allow these big winning trades to become outsized. And you can really, really run your winners in that respect. And... James had a great saying, and I think this possibly for me is the, is, is the saying of this podcast series. I loved it. He said, it takes guts to be a greedy pig. And what he's referencing there is the fact that it takes guts to ride your winners, to actually allow that winner to become an outsized port, part of your portfolio, to really ride it, to really ride your winners and see your, your, your winnings, you know, multiply several times over. It takes guts to be a greedy pig. I love that saying, and I think it's going to stick in my mind for a very long time. When it comes to risk, um, James did talk about diversification. Um, he says, though, that he likes to buy deep out-the-money puts. So put options, uh, if you buy a put option, effectively it's giving you the option to sell an asset at an agreed price at a, at a particular strike date. But he buys deep out the money puts. He doesn't like collar structures. So those who know options will know that a collar structure often involves selling an out the money call option and buying a put. He says the trouble with the collar is that you're giving away the upside um, in order to have some downside protection. He says he would far rather buy a deep out the money put and pay a premium of only one or two percent per year and still have all the upside. In other words, that upside to be the greedy pig that gets gets all the upside. Um, from an asset management, uh, asset allocation perspective, he spoke that he, he mentioned that he likes gold at the moment, thinks that with all the monetary inflation in the world and expanse of, of money supply, gold is, is the place to be. And certainly we're seeing gold and bullion in general rising as a result of that. Um, he doesn't like the fangs. So the Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Googles of the world, he sees them as being far too expensive. They're, they are pretty hot at the moment. And when it came to books, he said, well, he loves the, the Market Wizards series by Jack Schwager. And if you haven't read those, I can also highly recommend them. Jack Schwager, Market Wizards. He's been writing books um, and interviews with traders for many, many years. And some of them are absolutely fascinating. And I've really enjoyed reading all the Market Wizards books as well. And then again, James also mentioned the Warren Buffett letters and said <clears throat> that those are free. And ultimately, the insight that is available in those letters is better than what you'll get in many other books. 
The final interview in this season of Talking with Traders was actually with an analyst as opposed to a trader. It was with Anthony Clark of Small Talk Daily Research. This interview for me was really inspirational. Um, There's so much more to Anthony Clark than what I knew. I'd encountered him earlier on in my career. He was an analyst at NetBank when I was at BOE, so we were within the same group, but we didn't have that much to do with each other at that stage. But interviewing Anthony really gave me a far greater insight into his story. This is a man who's really pulled himself up by his own bootstraps to uplift himself out of very humble beginnings and to go on and do great things. He comes from Wales. Um, His mother was a cleaner. His stepfather was unemployed for a large part of his childhood. So he came from a really you know, low end of society and living in the UK as I do now, you know, you can see the class differences, um, people that are living in council houses and whatnot. And realistically and statistically, I suppose a lot of those type of people don't get very far in life. Anthony is an exception to that rule. He's really, really done well to, to uplift himself out of that environment and to do very, very well. He went to a state school, he worked hard, and through sheer determination, he's actually made a great success out of his life. He grew up in the Thatcher era when privatizations were a big theme. So that's where state-owned entities were being privatized and effectively sold off and listed on the stock market. So you could go and buy the shares of these state-owned entities. And Anthony Clark picked up on that and started to buy the shares of many of Britain's greatest state-owned enterprises. And those were being listed through their IPOs at deep discounts to their to their realizable valuations. So he did very well out of that as an early and a young investor. Ultimately, he went on to study electrical engineering at Cambridge, and he made the machines that made car parts. And he referred to the fact that he made the machine that made the bonnet for the Opel Corsa. But he didn't enjoy that, and he wanted to get involved in the stock market in a more full-time way. And ultimately, he got advice from a stockbroker to go back and study business. So he did that at his own account, his own cost. And in his own time, he went and studied some more and later went back to the same stockbroker who had given him that advice. And he got a job with that stockbroking firm on the London Stock Exchange. And it was from there that he began a focus on small cap shares. Uh, Ultimately, Anthony came to South Africa in 1996 and he's never left. He loves the company, the, the country, despite all its problems, and he loves living in Cape Town, where he stays in an apartment with his little Jack Russell dog called Plas Yapi, which is very famous on Twitter as well. And if you're not following Anthony Clark on Twitter, you should. His Twitter handle is at Small Talk Daily Research, um, and follow him. He's got a very colorful Twitter account. It's very informative, but also very amusing at the same time. Anthony's focused on a lot of the same small companies that he looks at now for the last 25 years. So he's seen management come and go. He's seen all the you know, ups and downs of these companies over many, many years. And um, he has a huge memory, memory like an elephant. And ultimately, he has a huge knowledge of all of these companies that he's followed for such a long time. His greatest success story actually was almost by accident. It was a company called Transcend Technology that he bought in the IPO in, in the UK, and he paid 30p for this company in the IPO, and he forgot about the shares. He never checked his broker statements. He admits that he's not good on admin. He hates checking the mail. So often envelopes would arrive and never get opened. 
And years later, he got a, a call from his stockbroker about these Transcend Technology shares, which he had long since forgotten about. Um, and they were in his abandoned account. And the stockbroker said, you know, what do you want to do with these shares? And he said, oh, I don't know. You know they're probably worth nothing. And the stockbroker said, no, no, no. They, you know, they, they, they're doing really well. Ultimately, they were 30 pounds per share. So what Anthony had bought for 30p had become 30 pounds. And a 15,000 pound investment turned into 180,000 pounds. So purely by, by accident to some extent. And that was a huge, huge success story for Anthony Clark. Um, he only ever trades in physical shares, no futures or options. He does not go short. He did it once. He said he went short on British Airways once and he lost an absolute fortune what relative at that time that early time in his life a, a, a fortune and he's never gone short again so he doesn't take aggressive risks he only trades physical stocks no leveraged product and he doesn't go short we asked about the universe of stocks that he focuses on the jse because it's quite well known that the universe of stocks on the JSE has shrunk from 700 shares a few years ago down to 350 now. And obviously that as an analyst means that your, your universe has shrunk. But Anthony also made a very valid point. He said, you know, that as a result of the, the drop in value of a lot of companies on the JSE, what were once large cap stocks have become mid cap stocks. And what were once mid cap stocks have become small cap stocks. So in fact, as much as, the broader universe might have shrunk. His universe has not always shrunk. He also follows a lot of companies that have ultimately been taken off the market and have gone private because those companies may still come back to market at some point in the future. He focuses on thematics rather than just a company. So he talks about farm to fork um, as, as an example. That's where he follows the entire commodities, the soft commodities sector, all the way through food production and ultimately to the food that is sold in the shops and that you buy and eat on your dining room table at night. Um, he also focuses on the education sector and follows the entire process there. He does, however, admit that because of the shrinking universe of stocks to monitor in South Africa, he does think he might need to start focusing more offshore in the not too distant future. <clears throat> he also makes the point that being an independent analyst means that he has speed on his side. And unlike analysts in big corporates that have layers and layers of compliance and processes and bureaucracy before they can publish a report, he's an independent and he can get information out into the market very, very quickly. And also keep in mind that he focuses and covers a lot of companies that are not widely covered by the bigger banking investment community. Um, so he, he focuses in a very niche area and he's he kind of has become the face of small cap uh, stocks in South Africa. And he's rated by the Financial Mail. He's over many, many years, he's persistently been rated as one of the top um, analysts in the small cap space on the JSE. He likes to look for companies that have strong balance sheets and that are not over leveraged. When it came to giving some names, he spoke about Bola Metcalf, Santova, and Quantum Foods. He said that these are companies that trade on very cheap valuations, but ultimately have really strong balance sheets. And he believes that ultimately the value in these companies will be unlocked over time as these businesses become noticed and become more um, seen to be robust. And particularly in a time like now around COVID-19, where a lot of over-leveraged companies are, are, are having a difficult time. 
he believes that ultimately investors will want to try and find these kind of companies that have very strong balance sheets and are robust. When it came to giving advice to youngsters, well, you've got to take it from Anthony Clark, a man who's really done well for himself from very, very humble beginnings. His advice, work hard, do what you're passionate about and read as much as you can. And in terms of books, he said One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch is one of the favorite books that he's ever read in his investment career. So that's it for season two of the Talking with Traders podcast series. Um, thank you very much to our sponsors, IG Markets, for sponsoring this season. And I'm pleased to be able to inform you that they have agreed to sponsor a third season. So I'll be looking to get some more guests on to a podcast season for a season three of Talking with Traders. Um, and they will probably be getting that underway in October. And I'll look to run another 10 past, uh, another 10 part series um, discussing with various traders and investors in my network, some of their stories and their insights into the market. So thank you for listening to me and to the guests throughout this season of, of Talking with Traders. Hope you've enjoyed it. I've certainly enjoyed it. I've found it very insightful. And I consider it a great privilege to be able to speak to the guests that I have been able to speak to. I'll be back with you in another month or two's time with season three of Talking with Traders. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking with Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to the series by clicking the subscribe button on your favorite app. Till next time.